This is a Soulfire production. Welcome to my channel. I'm your host, Christina. I'm an intuitive channel, 7D healer, business mentor, and manifestation expert. On this podcast, we discuss how to tap into your intuitive gifts, manifest the life you want, create a kick-ass business in flow, and take a holistic approach to health and wellness. Don't forget to connect with me on Instagram at ChristinaTheChannel and on my website, ChristinaTheChannel.com. So fun fact about me, in case you didn't know, I studied psychology and film and television in college. I went to UCLA for undergrad and my first year of school, as I was thinking, what do I want to do with my psychology degree? I thought I wanted to be a relationship therapist because all of my favorite classes were about relationships. I thought they were so fascinating. I'm actually very good at facilitating productive conversations between two people, but obviously I didn't become a relationship therapist. Although sometimes I feel like I am with some of the conversations I have. But the point is I find relationships to be so fascinating. And if you do too, then you are going to love today's guest. And I also think this is such an interesting topic, especially in the last few years as People have been speaking out more about their different opinions on marriage and monogamy. So it's definitely an interesting topic. And on today's show, I am talking to Roger Nygaard. He is such an awesome guy. He is an acclaimed filmmaker and triple-time Emmy-nominated TV editor. And he created the documentary... The Truth About Marriage, which also has an accompanying book, and I highly recommend checking his content out. He's probably best known for his documentary Trekkies. He also has a documentary called The Nature of Existence that I think a lot of you would really like. It's all about the world's philosophies, religions, and different belief systems. And he's directed different TV series like The Office, The Bernie Mac Show. And as a film editor, he's worked on Grey's Anatomy, The League, Who is America, Veep, Curb Your Enthusiasm. He has so much experience and has done some amazing work. And today we're going to talk about his documentary, The Truth About Marriage, which I strongly recommend watching. And I would watch it with your partner. I think it's very thought-provoking, interesting. Some good discussion can come from it. And if you're interested in relationships and marriage, you like learning about different perspectives and also about the origin of different cultural norms, then you will love this. So we are diving into all things relationships and marriage in today's show. Check out the documentary and the book, The Truth About Marriage. You can find more from Roger at rogernygaard.com. And also he's on Instagram at rogernygaard and Twitter at rogernygaard as well. I also just wanted to remind you that The up-level membership is currently open for enrollment, so if you have been waiting for the chance to join in the membership, now is the time. As a member, you get access to monthly Q&A calls with me, monthly manifestation calls, an amazing community of like-minded women, endless exclusive video trainings, blog posts. This is where I share all of my channeled messages. If you love all things woo-woo, manifestation, intuition, this is for you. You can head to christinathechannel.com 
slash membership to find all the information. And it's a monthly membership, cancel anytime, but it's an amazing place to be. Our community is so, so incredible. So that's all at christinathechannel.com slash membership. All right, let's talk about all things relationships. It's going to be a really interesting one. I'm excited to hear what you think. Enjoy this conversation with Roger Nygaard. Everyone wants to know how to balance their hormones. The thing is, there are a lot of hormones to balance. So how do you go about actually helping to balance all of them? You support your endocannabinoid system, which is really the balancing system in the body. And the way you do this is through full spectrum hemp oil. This is one of the many reasons why I love Ned full spectrum hemp oil. People ask me all the time about CBD. This is the only CBD product I use. It is so potent, so powerful, and the highest quality out there. What's different about Ned is it's not just a CBD. Their formula contains the full range of phytocannabinoids. So you have the full spectrum. You have the CBD, but also the CBG, CBC, CBDA, CBGA, everything that works together to provide that entourage effect, which is what offers the true benefits of hemp. And some of those benefits include balancing out your hormones, your cortisol, your sex hormones, which means, yes, it can help with your period. It also can help with your sleep, regulating melatonin. This is amazing as a sleep aid. If you struggle with insomnia, I've had so many clients and friends who can't get to sleep, who finally can sleep when they start using Ned. It's also an amazing way to support anxiety, depression, boost your mood. It's a great anti-inflammatory if you have any type of inflammation, pain, physical body pain, but also autoimmune disease. It really supports all of the systems in your body and helps to balance you out. And I have noticed a huge difference since using that. I've been using this product for a long time now, a couple years that has changed my life and I will never go back. And the sourcing is so important to me. They only extract from hemp flowers. They don't extract from the stalks and seeds of the hemp plant like a lot of other companies. And they use a really gentle, slow ethanol-based extraction method at room temperature. A lot of companies out there use high heat or high pressure, which really compromises the profile of the hemp flower and can compromise the cannabinoid content. They also infuse their products with positive vibes, love, and gratitude. We know all about the power of this through a lot of research around how our words and intention can affect molecular structure. Check out the hidden messages in water if you didn't know about that. And they also attune their products to binaural beats to the frequencies of 3.5 hertz and 7.83 hertz. These help to promote balancing and grounding. I take a dropper's worth every night, leave it under my tongue for about 30 seconds, swallow, and notice a huge difference. I can't recommend this enough. And if you're a woman, check out their natural cycle collection. Amazing for regulating your period. You can check out all of Ned's products at helloned.com. They have their full spectrum hemp oil, their natural cycle collection, their hemp-infused lip balm, their hemp-infused body butter, their new sleep blend. And you can use the code wellness, W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S, for 15% off any of the products. Again, that's helloned.com and use that code wellness, W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S, for 15% off any of their products. To start off, how about you tell my listeners a little bit about how you got started in the film industry? I found my dad's camera when I was about seven. First, his still camera. He left it sitting out, which is all, when I was a kid, if something was out, I found it, disassembled it, examined it, 
either broke it or learned it. And he had this camera. It was a 120 millimeter black and white film roll with a reflex viewing where you look down like this and the pictures out there. And I went down to the lake and took pictures of ice where I lived in Minnesota and the water had splashed up and made these beautiful, I thought really beautiful frozen icicles. And I took pictures because I thought it was pretty. And then I forgot about it. And then a few weeks later, because you mail off your role to get developed and it came back, who wasted this film on ice? (laughs) (laughs) And that was my beginning. And ever since I've, I've moved up to eight millimeter film and then video and the budgets have gotten a little higher, but they're essentially the same thing I've been doing since I was a kid. Wow. Okay. And then what brought you to Hollywood? Well, that's where everything is, the center of the world for media. And my goal, once I realized that at some point, I got it into my head, I'm going to move out to Los Angeles. I went to college first and got a degree in communications because that's the closest thing they had to filmmaking at the University of Minnesota Mm -hmm. with my plan to finish and then move out and go to grad school, which, and I applied to grad schools in LA and I got rejected by all of them except USC. I got into USC, which is the best one. Oh, uh, the debatable. You know, well, I went to UCLA. Sure. I studied the film and TV one. at UCLA. <laughs> I wanted to get into UCLA. That was my first choice, and they, they rejected me. Uh, all right. Well, so you went to USC. I didn't. Okay. No, I got in. Oh, you didn't. And then while I was waiting for the semester to start, I sent out resumes. Literally almost 1,000. I sent out about 980 resumes. I got a book listing every single production company in Los Angeles. I didn't know at the time that was kind of a waste of time to send most of them because some are just one person at a house and others like Paramount Studios. That's just, (laughs) you know, we're not hiring PAs. You got to go to the production companies. Anyway, I sent out hundreds and got a one out of 100 response rate. And that led to three interviews and two job offers. And I took one and I ended up working there for five years for a company that managed comedians and produced movies by the time the semester rolled around at USC, I was already working and I thought, I'm going to just keep working here because the money I'm going to, I would spend, which was very expensive at USC, mm-hmm. I could take that money and just make my own short film. And then I would own it because if you make, there's no guarantee at USC, you get to make a film. And if you do, they own it. So I thought, I'm just going to, I've already got a job. I, so I switched my plan to more like learn by doing, mm-hmm. which is kind of what I've continued doing my whole life ever since. Yeah. And I mean... As a, as a filmmaker, you, you have an excuse, you have a good excuse to ask all, all of the right people, all the things you want to know the answers to, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what it switched to documentaries. My first documentary mm-hmm. is called Trekkies, about Star Trek fans. And I had no idea I wanted to make documentaries until that point. It was not my, one of my goals. It was not a desire. But my friend, Denise Crosby, who was an actress who was in my first feature, pitched the idea to me because she, as an actress, was doing Star Trek conventions and said, these people are really interesting. So we researched it together and watched a bunch of documentaries like My Brother's Keeper, Hoop Dreams, um, Roger and Me, etc. Everything by Errol Morris and started to absorb the language of documentaries. And we decided to shoot one weekend. We found a producer who was willing to put up the money. There's a Star Trek convention. We went there and filmed for three days and the footage was so colorful and the experience was so exciting that I was hooked. And I've been making documentaries ever since. And I realized my interest and style of making documentaries is to find a topic that's so engaging and virtually impossible to understand and then uh, uh, obsess about it until I had a a movie, until I had a film made. 
my next documentary was about aliens and are they really coming here? It's called Six Days in Roswell. My, the one after that is called The Nature of Existence, which my core question there was, why do we exist and what is our purpose here? Unanswerable, essentially, right? The age-old existentialist question, but the fact that it's such a difficult question, that drew me to wanting to solve it for myself, which I did by making the film. And then my most recent film, the core question is, why are relationships or marriages so hard for people? There's got to be something going on. And so I, I'm like this investigator who sets out to solve the mystery. And then the audience comes with me. I love it. So of, of those documentaries, which was the most challenging for you? <laughs> Seem to get more and more challenging every time because each one takes longer and longer. <laughs> After I finished The Nature of Existence, which is about a, the, the, the idea of existence itself, I thought I, I need a, a bigger challenge. What's more challenging than existence itself? Marriage. <laughs> and that one took me seven years to solve to crack that nut and to figure it out and um finish the movie so i would have to say marriage and relationships was the biggest conundrum that i tried to mm. unravel i'm curious what the prep work is like for that and how you're deciding who you're interviewing if you go to their bookstore and look at the shelf on self-help relationship books there are a lot mm-hmm I just started shopping in Amazon and in person at bookstores. And I told I had a stack of books, six feet tall, five or five feet tall, and began reading them and taking notes, underlining and keeping track. And it took about a year to read through a, a sufficient amount of books to really understand the question I'm asking better. And what are the sub questions to it? And all the authors and psychologists and researchers and marriage therapists who had written about this subject before me and had themselves pursued answers, I got this big map and put it on the wall and started putting push pins, like here's where they're all located to see where they would cluster. And then, uh, okay, now I'm going to plan a trip. Here's the Northeastern cluster. Here's the uh, Midwestern. Uh, here's the West coast. And this, these people are over here in Europe. Then I would plan trips. I mean, a great excuse to travel <laughs> is bring a camera and go visit some of the greatest minds in relationships and ask them all the questions that are bothering me the most for a couple of hours. It's so satisfying to, to talk to someone who knows mm -hmm. what's going on and to, and to say, this is really bothering me. What's the solution? And because I brought my camera, it's no charge. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. It was, it's cool for me. Cause when I was watching the movie, I'm like, Oh, I've read that book. I read that book, but I, you know, forgot, forgot the author's names and had no idea what they looked like. For you, what were the most burning questions you had going into it? Well, it was really about me. It's all about me, my problems, my, I, I'm, I'm a, my failures as a human being, because the whole point of our existence that is socially, that we're socialized for a reason to believe is that we are to find a soulmate, a life partner, and spend the rest of your life happy with that person. And I was failing at that goal. And I realized that no one teaches you how to do this thing that is arguably the most important thing you'll ever do in your life, which is choose someone to be with you forever or as long as you're alive. And if there was just a class in high school where they gave you some basic pointers, like there's some <laughs> landmines here, watch out for these. There's some pitfalls over there. A couple of slight changes in your attitude will vastly improve the trajectory of any relationship you're about to start. Mm. That's what I set out 
and I found and summarized it, it to, in the film and in the book that I wrote that goes along with the film. And a lot of the things that didn't fit in the film, like passion, why does passion fade? How can we get it back? There's a whole chapter on how to rekindle passion that just didn't fit in the movie, but is I can ex- expand it on in the book. Mm-hmm. And it's really simple. A lot of the things that the mistakes, we're all, we're all making the same mistakes, some less than others over time trial and error, we learn, well, that doesn't work as well as this. And by the time you're 70, you kind of have it figured out. But wouldn't it be nice to know that at 20 or 30 mm-hmm. or 50? You know, give us some clues. And, and so that was my goal, my, my motivation. Yeah. So for people who haven't read the book, um, can you give some personal context? Yeah. Well, it's called The Truth About Marriage, the book and the film. And I started out failing, as I mentioned. And so I, there's three times that I look back on my life so far, the three times I was in love and started to imagine myself with this person forever, having children, buying a house, all these things. And each time they ended before we could get to that, I couldn't get to the altar and sometimes ended very badly and difficult and painful. And I realized that's how I, you know, it's love is because it hurts so much. If you break up and it doesn't hurt that much, it wasn't love. Maybe there's something yeah. else going on. <laughs> that's, the, that's how you know. Love hurts. <laughs> and each time I got a little better and I learned more, but I still was making the same mistakes over and over again. And we have what I realized, or I like to call them, we have emotional vitamins that we need from our partner. And they're different. Our partner needs something different than I, you or I need from you. And, and, and you have to learn what your partner needs. It's like the, the, the love languages, right? You have to learn the, uh, what, what it is that how you experience love may be different from the way your partner experiences love. And so you need to learn what it is that they need as to, to feel satisfied. Because if you're giving them what's, what we do is we give them what we need. And if you do, and it's not one of their love languages, it doesn't count. And in fact, it counts against you. I remember I was dating someone once and one of my love languages is not receiving gifts. I hate receiving gifts. And she would keep giving me gifts and it would mm-hmm. bother me, but it was her, she was expressing how she felt. And I needed to be giving her gifts in, cause that was, that was what she needed. And no one had explained that to me. And mm-hmm. so once you look back, it, it, it's really pretty simple and a lot of it's counterintuitive and you've got to sort of erase these grooves that are in your behavior and, and form new grooves that are going to be, give you much more positive outcomes because the whole goal is to be happier, right? When you're in conflict, you're unhappy and you want to get back to happiness as quickly as possible. There are ways to do that. Like in conflict, the masculine brain, or at least the masculine part of your brain or my brain wants to litigate an argument, wants to argue, well, you said this and so I'm wrong. I'm right and you're wrong and let's play back the tape and I'll prove it. Whereas the feminine when I'm in my feminine or with someone, if I'm with someone who's more feminine than me, the feminine doesn't care what happened. That person is, is in pain, wants to be recognized, an apology gets you there quickly, right or wrong. And once you realize how, what each person needs, and if you, once you are able to provide it, you can get past that, back to happiness much faster. And that's what we all want, right? Mm-hmm. The best way to approach any argument particularly for the masculine one is if either I'm sorry, of course, but also how can I, what can I do 
to help you feel better? If you ask that question, then it starts coming out, oh, well, I'm being heard, this is what I need, and then end with a hug, and no matter whose fault it was, you're back to where you wanna be. And that seems pretty simple, right? If you could just learn that phrase, I've learned that phrase now, I wish I'd known that phrase and employed it in the past, but I didn't. But these inf- the, this knowledge is out there, and counselors exist to help us get this information, to learn these things. The reason counselors exist is because as a species, we are out of sync with who we are. Our relationship, our, we're out of, society is out of sync with who we are as a species. And society is asking us to behave in ways that are out of sync with what's natural for us. And society means government, uh, institutions, friends, parents, partners. That's all part of society. And we have these expectations. Once you start to learn, first of all, who you are and, be, and accept who, you, who and what you are, mm-hmm. then you can love yourself. And then, and this is really the only path to happiness in a relationship, is acceptance of your partner for who and what they are. Because uh, when I interviewed the Gottmans, John Gottman said that relationships naturally deteriorate over time. Mm. So if you start a relationship, it's going to end unless you put conscious intent into it. You have to put the energy in to keeping that plate spinning. It's like you start a relationship, you're spinning a plate. If you don't keep spinning it, it's going to stop spinning and fall over and it's done and everyone's upset and why did that happen? That's how we're designed because of our, the way our culture is. And the Gottman Institute, for instance, they exist to help couples fix that, they, to rekindle their relationships. And once you begin to understand that and give each partner what they need, you just do so much better. Yeah. So besides the love language piece and maybe using that, that golden question in an argument, after making the documentary and writing the book, um, like looking back, what other mistakes do you feel like you made? There are uh, so many I had to write a book about it. <laughs> when I asked, here's one thing I asked the experts was, what is one thing that people can do, the most important thing they can do mm-hmm. to give their relationship a better chance at longevity and happiness? Let's say someone's listening to this podcast. They're thinking of getting married right now. There is something you can do that most people don't do that would give you a better chance. And here's what they all said. Uh, Tai Tashiro, who is a psychologist, told me that when they've done some research, they found that religious couples tend to to do better than non-religious couples in terms of longevity and happiness. And what they found is it's not because of their religion. It's because their religion forces them to do premarital counseling before Mm -hmm. they can get married. And the number one thing you can do is premarital counseling. Nobody thinks of going to counseling when things are going well. You go, one of the psychologists I interviewed, John Friel, said that when people come to him he's, to, in, to help, please help us save our marriage, it's like going to the ER seven years after you broke your leg and saying, please fix my leg. Well, I could have done much better if you came here seven years ago. Now we've got to re-break the leg and hope, you may never walk the same again, but we'll do our best. And that's why it's one reason it's very difficult. So if you understand that relationships start out from the beginning broken, and if you can fix it from the beginning, 
it'll heal forward, going better, much better. And what does that mean? That means, and I, and I made a, put an addendum in the book, which is a sort of a quiz, uh, if you're about to get married, quiz, for all the things you should ask your partner, you should ask each other. I got this from a divorce attorney that I interviewed named Lawrence Bloom in New York City. Because he told me that when people come to him for either a prenuptial agreement or for a divorce agreement, one part of that is, of course, a financial disclosure. Both parties have to list all their assets and all their debts, credit cards, bank accounts, everything they own. Because if you marry somebody, you are taking on all their debt. For instance, we don't always think about that. So one question each partner should be aware of, are you willing to pay off your partner's debts? Yes, sir. I mean, maybe you are, maybe you're not. Maybe you have the ability to do that. Maybe you don't. Or maybe if you can't, you at least are aware of each other's financial situation. And then you can agree to a plan for going forward that will be financially healthy. That seems kind of obvious to have a financial disclosure. What's less obvious is a personal priorities disclosure statement. Mm -hmm. And that's what's different and unique, I think, about, and that's what premarital counseling tries to get at. So I created a quiz where I suggest people, first of all, they rank numerically, what's more important to you? And you would go down a list. I have it right here. Number one, what would you give a number one to? My spouse, our children, our future children, my children from an earlier relationship, my spouse's children from an earlier relationship, my parents, my extended family, my brothers, and include on that my work, hobbies, sex, religion, shopping, you rank all these things. And if your top five kind of don't come close to aligning, that's something you really need to talk about. Mm -hmm. It's, for example, it's kind of a Sophie's choice. Like if you had to choose between your spouse and your child, and you can't say they're equal because they're not, Mm -hmm. which one is more important? We start out where the spouse is the most important thing to us. That's the, the, we make this pledge. You're the most important thing to me. And then if they have a child, now this child is, it's your own genetics. And who is more replaceable, that child or the spouse? People replace spouses all the time, but that child is unique and it's part of you. And it's, that becomes the new priority, mm. which means that this, this little power shift happens in this triad that used to be a dyad. And you have to get used to that and accept the fact that I'm no longer as important to my spouse as this child is to each of us. And that's natural. That's what it happens naturally. But people don't have training to expect that. And so it, it's much more difficult when things hit you unexpectedly. Part of that quiz, that premarital quiz in my book, is then to answer a few, write a few sentences about each question. Like, where would you like to live? What's your dream home like? Do you like, do you prefer Ikea or antiques? How many bank accounts should we have each? uh, Should we each have our own bank account? Should we have one bank account? Should we have uh, three bank accounts, one for each of us and one for the relationship that we each put in a percentage that we agree to? And what percentage should we each put in? Does it change over time? Should religious holidays be celebrated? How light or dark should the bedroom be when we're sleeping? And is it okay to leave the TV on all night while you're sleeping? And, It's just a matter of knowing in advance what your expectations are and what your partner's expectations are with the goal of creating a mutual priority statement that you both now endorse. 
And you don't have to agree on everything, but at least now you understand what each of your expectations are. If, so if that, that's probably the most important thing I could impart that I've learned mm-hmm. from the experts to anyone who is now, right now, considering marriage. Well, how early do you think somebody should take that quiz, though? Because, I mean, I think it would be early. It would be relevant earlier than, okay, now we're going to get married. <laughs> you, don't, you certainly don't want to do that on your first date. Yeah, probably not. But, you know, I mean, I guess it depends on the timeline. <laughs> but I feel like I would want to know about those kinds of things before I got close enough to get engaged. <laughs> Is your goal to marry someone? That's what you have to ask yourself first. Mm-hmm. Or is your goal just to find a companion for a little while or for however long? Mm-hmm. A lot of people, if not most, start out that way. I'm just looking for a companion for now. And then it moves into, should we get married? Whenever you get to the point where you're asking, should I be marrying this person at some point? The sooner you ask this question, that gets you to, what are your core values? Because those don't change after age 25, your core values are kind of set for life. All the surfacey things, I like this food, you like that food, you can disagree on music. And in fact, it's better if you disagree on music because then you're going to improve each other's music collection and you're going to open each other's tastes to different music or different foods. But if your core values are, are not in sync, that's going to be a problem in the future. And what's a core value? One core value is integrity. What does it mean What are the rules for living your life? Is religion important to you? What do you believe? It's, you know, those those third rails, religion and politics are two very big signs of what your core values are. Mm -hmm. And if you, either you have to, they have to be in alignment or you're going to have to make a pact for our entire lives. We can never talk politics. It kind of sucks if your life partner, there are places, big areas you can't talk about with each other. Let's be honest kind of want to start a podcast. And you have that thought for a reason. This is exactly why I teamed up with Kelly Tennant and Connor Moore, and we have combined forces to create the pod course, which is a course that teaches you everything you need to know about how to launch and grow a successful podcast. I've been podcasting for five years. Kelly and Connor have been doing this for a long time too. We've all hosted different shows. We've all rebranded. Kelly and Connor run Soulfire Productions, our production company. So they work with so many podcasts every single day, seeing behind the scenes. And we know how complicated it can be. So we combined all of our information and knowledge and laid everything out in a really easy to understand, super helpful format. So you can learn in six weeks what took us collectively probably about 15 years to figure out. We cover everything from technology, what equipment to use, how to set up your podcast logistically, hosting it, editing it producing it, branding your show, naming your show, figuring out your niche, different podcasting styles and how to format your show, how to interview. This is crucial. And Kelly was a professional reporter for a long time. So it's very helpful to have her professional skills. We talk about guest outreach, how to get amazing guests on your show, pitching your podcast, getting on other shows, different promotional strategies and marketing strategies, how to build and grow your community, how to get reviews, and of course, how to monetize. There's so much misinformation out there about monetizing your podcast and we lay it all out so that you can grow your show, monetize it, and you don't have to have a gazillion downloads to do so. Kelly, Connor, and I all have experience building podcasts from the ground up. We didn't have big followings and then 
whip out a podcast and everybody ran our way. So we get exactly where you are. It can help guide you through this so that you can launch your show and hit the ground running. We are launching this six week course starting November 2nd. It is going to have weekly modules that will have video and audio content, PDFs and guides to support you along the way, and then weekly Q&A calls so that you can connect with other podcasters and have that community aspect as well. And you will leave this course able to create massive impact and make money. Enrollment closes October 26th and we have limited spots available. So make sure you head to thepodcourse.com to snag your spot. Now we start November 2nd. Enrollment closes October 26th and you can sign up at thepodcourse.com. We are so excited to help you launch a kick-ass show. A question that I keep coming to is, especially right now in this day and age, I feel like so many people, this this generation, like marriage is kind of just getting outdated. I feel like just so many people aren't aren't doing the marriage thing. They don't want the government involved. How do you think that affects a partnership? Because a lot of people are deciding to just be in a long-term partnership, not legally get married, still have kids or not. I'm curious how you think that affects the dynamic. Part of setting out on this journey to investigate marriage, I mean, the film's called The Truth About Marriage. I had to understand what is marriage? What does that mean? And what I discovered is that marriage is a legal contract that essentially deals primarily with finances, with property, and how you're going to share them and how you're going to split them up when you split up. The reason, one reason it exists, the, this marriage contract, is because society needs it for when you do split up, because you're gonna, there's going to be a big mess. And there need to be rules for how to clean up that mess that you're going to create. Mm -hmm. And that's one reason that this marriage contract evolved. All these things that we take for granted, these add-ons or these assumptions, like fidelity, being a good listener, being, being good in bed, having sex the right amount of times, these are not listed in the marriage contract. There's no legal rule that you have to do any of those things to your partner's satisfaction. We go in with these assumptions, or if you had a, if you had premarital counseling, you've got a pretty good idea, you have a better chance. So, what is marriage for then? This marriage contract is designed for people who are going to have children, because it's a contract for sharing resources for the raising of children. That's what it primarily is. And then some of the tertiary benefits are you get to be involved in medical decisions or visit in the hospital or be in someone's obituary or uh, inheritance rights. These big decisions are accounted for. Mm -hmm. But if your goal is to be happy with someone and not have children, then it's maybe going to be more helpful to just have a, a, a lesser contract and there are unions that you can, uh, agreements that you can make that de- determine what is, what is the basis of our, of our partnership. Mm-hmm. There are things called common law marriages in some states, not all, but that where after 10 years, they just assume you're married, no matter what you say. But if you're going to go forward based on assumptions, you're going to be frustrated at some point. And the marriage contract is trying to avoid some of those assumptions being disastrous. Have your views on marriage changed? Yeah, oh, completely. I mean, knowing, learning what it is changed them right there. Mm-hmm. Part of my 
investigation was to find out where marriage came from. How did it evolve? Why does it even exist? What is it? And what I discovered or learned from the anthropologists and the psychologists and the historians is that human beings used to exist in a different way 100,000 years ago. We've been around as a species for about 200,000 years. And for most of that time, about 90% of that time, we existed on the African savanna in small tribes of 150 humans or fewer. What we call traditional marriage, like the 1950s, is a tiny, tiny sliver in human history. Mm. That's not what we've been doing. You, you would call normal what we've been doing most of our history. And so for 95% of human history, we've been living in small tribes where everything was shared. It was a collective. Food, shelter, and uh, some of the psychologists like Chris Ryan argue that sex was shared. It wasn't a proprietary thing. You didn't have ownership over anything except what you could carry because they were nomads. And any one of the children in the tribe could be, you, could be yours or you could be related to. And so everyone loved everyone equally and it was a group effort. And that only works up to about 150 people, which is called Dunbar's number. A researcher, a British psychologist, discovered that we have the emotional carrying capacity to essentially keep track of about 150 people or a gross 144. And once you get a new close friend, someone gets bumped. And the reason that is, is because that's the amount you can keep track of who owes who a favor, who's pulling their weight in the tribe. And that's how people, you didn't need laws and rules to govern people because they'd be ostracized if they didn't do what they're supposed to do. And during that time, there's no need for marriage. There's no need for, but there, there were couples, people still coupled up. Uh, at least this is what people, the uh, anthropologists believe. Right now, one of the problems with the perfect partner, the soulmate is going to have everything I need to be happy. But in the time when we lived in a collective, you might get some of your needs met from the good storyteller of the tribe. And, this, and some of your needs, here's a, a good listener. This one's good with this, good with that. And your emotional vitamins are all met, or, or your needs are met, not from putting the pressure on one person to provide everything and then being frustrated and dissatisfied when that person can't live up to, to those needs, which is where we are today. Hmm. What changed? Here's what changed. Six to 10,000 years ago, humans discovered agriculture. They stopped being nomads. They stayed in one place. The idea of propriety occurred. Like, I own this. This is my land. These are my domesticated animals. This is my wife. This is what and the men would think. And the men started to think, well, if I own all this stuff, I need to be able to make sure that I'm passing what I own, my possessions, on to my genetic offspring. But how can I do that? If a man in that era couldn't practice what the biologists call mate guarding, which mm. you see, like you see birds doing it, keeping an eye on their spouse so that someone can't fly in and fertilize their eggs. He's out in the field, he's working, he's hunting. If he's not there 24 seven, how can he be certain it's his baby? A woman knows, right? It comes out of her body. There's no doubt it's her baby, right? But there's an old phrase, right? Uh, mommy's baby, daddy's maybe. <laughs> and so the idea of marriage evolved or occurred as a way to build a social fence around women's sexual behavior. 
so men could feel better about his offspring actually belonging to his. They did a, a genetic, once genetic testing became available, uh, one of the scientists I interviewed, uh, Robin Baker, they picked a small town in Ireland and genetically tested everybody and all the children, and they found that 10% of the children were not related to the person they thought was their father. Okay, yeah, when, when we heard that in the movie, I was like, do you think that's true? That's crazy. <laughs> then they expanded, and what they found was that number goes down to around 2% with very wealthy mm. environments or countries, and it goes up much higher maybe 20% in much poorer countries. And obviously in a tribal environment, a hundred thousand years ago, everybody's mixing with everybody. Yeah. So to get to that 10% number though, there's a lot of cheating going on. That's well above 10% that mm -hmm. leads to, to offspring. So why are people forced to cheat? There's something that's within humans that makes us dissatisfied with one partner and we do our best. And monogamy is the rule. And I'll finish this soliloquy with why is monogamy the rule? After agriculture, the thing that evolved next was polygamy because some men gathered more wealth than others. And soon you had lords and barons and kings and pharaohs and sultans. And the pharaohs or the sultans had many, as many as 5,000 concubines. They would just collect all the women because they could. The problem with that is then their kingdom becomes very unstable because then you've got 5,000 young men without access to women and they're not very happy about it and they express themselves aggressively and bad news. So what evolved was, okay, new rule, one man, one woman, that's the rule for everyone, including the king, including the pope, including whoever you are, no matter how much power you have, everyone has the same rule. <laughs> and that's the origin of where we are today. In short, I mean, there's many other complexities and there's exceptions, but that's what I discovered in looking back at why we're so out of sync today with what we evolved to be 100, 200, 200,000 years ago. So all of that to say, back to how did that change your view on marriage? Does that mean you don't believe it anymore or you do? I told, uh, yes, absolutely. If you're, if you're with someone and you want to share, half of all you own mm -hmm. and this is a way for you to express your love and you feel like i want to express my love this way and in a socially acceptable way sure why not go in with your eyes open though and give yourself the best chance you can through uh, premarital counseling or at least openly discussing who you are with your partner one of the couples i interviewed in my film are polyamorous they decided before they got married they were going to keep dating other people after they got married which is very unusual for our society, becoming less and less unusual, I guess. And they're a very high functioning couple, in my opinion, and continue to be so. And it's not because I think they're polyamorous or they have sex with other people sometimes. It's because in order to be polyamorous, they had to be 100% open mm -hmm. and honest with their partner. So there were no surprises or very few. They, they knew exactly who they were getting. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the way things are set up, when you go on a date, if I go on a date, I put my best Roger, here, here's my best version of myself and my person I'm dating is the best version of her. It's two masks dating. It's a mask dating a mask. And let's say we keep going, eventually those masks are going to slip. Mm -hmm. And I, mean, I didn't know that you were that way. You know, I didn't know you'd get so angry all the time when something small, you know, little things come out that are, uh, I'm not so sure about that. Yeah. 
And that leads to frustration and difficulty and counseling if you want to get past it. If you can get there sooner with a full disclosure of who you are, not on the first date, but once you've earned it, then you've got a better chance. So what do you think about monogamy now? Knowing like the history and seeing some polyamorous couples. It's the rule of our society and we all want to fit in and we want to feel like we are accepted and doing the right thing and society accepts us and it works for some people and it doesn't work for others. Mm-hmm. So what do you do? Let's say, I mean, number one, I'm, I'm, a, I'm in favor of monogamy, number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, I'm also in favor of poly, uh, polyamory for those who choose either path. Depending which path you choose, go in with open eyes. And if you choose monogamy, then be aware that at some point, your body, your genetics, mother nature is going to throw a monkey wrench at you and you're going to be tempted and you're going to, it's, it's going to build over time this, what's called habituation. You get used to your partner and stop to take, you start to take them for granted. They're no longer as special as when you started out. It's much, it's much, it's harder and harder to maintain that level of excitement and passion that you had at the beginning of the relationship. And so that's why passion naturally fades. And I asked people in the documentary, what's the, the, the normal, of number of, normal number of times to have sex when you're married? And it came out around once or twice a week is what people settle into. And I say, what was the normal number of times when you were first dating? It was like two, three, four, five times a day when <laughs> yeah. I started out. You can't keep up that pace or the, your body can't handle it. And if you enter a monogamous relationship understanding a little better what human nature is, then there are ways to deal with that monkey wrench when it comes. What do you do? Maybe role playing. Maybe you try different things. Maybe you get creative. Maybe you make rules that every week we, we, or every once a month, we have to choose a new location to have sex. Just things to shake it up so you don't get into a rut doing the same things over and over again. Maybe you go to a hotel room. Maybe you, you go to a new city. Maybe you, you know, in the car, whatever, mm-hmm. whatever works. And that's one possible way to choose monogamy, even though you may have to struggle with natural desires that are within you. You can't change natural desires, but you can change your behavior. Mm. And, and you, if you ask your partner to change, they might feel resentful. And that they might change their behavior, but they'll be resentful and it'll come out in other ways. So you've got to go into it together as a team, knowing let's, let's acknowledge the fact that we're each going to be attracted to other people possibly in the future because it's natural, but we're committed to each other and let's find ways through it. And one of the, my chapter on passion, how to regain the passion, there are people, passion experts who teach couples how to reignite the passion for each other that they feel that they've lost. And the, I've, I went to, I observed one of these things and within two hours, they had couples back like tearing each other, wanting to tear each other's clothes off. Like once the seminar was over, it was like someone pulled the fire alarm and they ran home to have sex as quickly as possible because it's a formula that people stop following. And what did they do with the seminar? It's polarity. It's polarity based. Masculine, feminine, polarity. If you have two masculines or two feminines, there's no polarity. You're the Mm -hmm. same because we're meant to complete each other, not to duplicate each other. Mm -hmm. And so 
what they teach is that what works best is a good pairing of masculine and feminine, whether you see it in gay couples or straight couples or everything in between. One tends to have the what we, we call the masculine behaviors. It's like this umbrella of behaviors or feelings that one group has. And then the feminine is another group we, we attribute as the feminine thoughts and behaviors. And I have feminine and masculine. I have both. And when I'm in my feminine uh, energy, then I have feminine needs. And when I'm in my masculine energy, I have masculine needs. The ideal partner for me matches up with my percentage mm-hmm. in the opposite combination. And most heterosexual couples, about 80%, I think, uh, David Data's um, percentage is, that he claims, is a masculine male and a feminine female. But it can be reversed, mm-hmm. or it could be a combination of, of 80, 30, 70, 30, or whatever. And what happens is that the work environment is masculine. Everyone's masculine. The behaviors are masculine, what we would consider masculine in this umbrella of choices we've called masculine and there are always exceptions when what they teach them is they at this seminar is they separate the men and the women and they rekindle and recalibrate their masculine and feminine energies and reteach them how to be these ways and then re, then reunite them and then it's it's not, the spark is naturally there once they're rekindled so if you're masculine, if you're, if you're in a masculine work environment all day, when you go, let's say you're primarily feminine, if you go home, you need time to sort of gear shift back to your feminine when you're with mm-hmm. your partner, if that's how you best interact together. And uh, then the spark will naturally kindle again. Mm. I mean, maybe that's why so many people have problems, because as a society, we're mostly in our masculine energy. But right. <laughs> my question is, I mean, so we have these primal urges to stray from monogamy, but I feel like, I mean, besides switching things up to keep the passion alive, I feel like there are plenty of couples who don't really actively struggle with that urge. Right. That's true. Yeah. I, 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 would, I would say that there's like a bell curve. We're all on this bell curve. Some are way over here on this side and some are way on the other side. And most of us are in the middle with some percentage mixture of whatever it is we're measuring, whether it's addiction to nicotine. Some people are very, get addicted very easily. Some could smoke a cigarette and never get addicted to nicotine. Alcoholism, same thing. Gay or straight, I think where human beings are on this, this bell curve of some are very straight, some are gay. Most people are somewhere in the middle where they could kind of go either way, depending on what the society they live in. Mm-hmm. If you look at Greek society, you know, ancient Greeks, they, it was a much more sexually fluid environment. And so you could go one way or the other, depending what's normal for your society. Mm-hmm. So we're all somewhere on this spectrum. And like, what is normal? That's one of my favorite questions. Like normal is what most people do. And we all want to feel like we're normal. Generally, we want to fit in. Well, I don't think normal is what most people do. I think that's common. Good point. Most, most things right. that are we common are normal, not normal. Yeah, we, we call, call it normal. normal. Yeah. Right. But what's, what's truly normal is what's within us mm-hmm. and what we're made of and genetically and, and, and uh, what's a natural inclination. And so, yeah, what do you do? That's the age-old question now. What do you do with a partner if you 
have a feeling that is outside of what our society expects us to feel. If you're with a partner that you have been and can be completely open about who you are, then you can talk about it. You have no problem talking about it. But if you're not, then you've got to hide it Mm -hmm. from your partner. Because if you express it, your partner will get angry and punish you for expressing Mm -hmm. who you are. So we're kind of set up to fail by our society, (laughs) sadly. One of the uh, people I interviewed was a social psychologist, a sociologist named Benjamin Carney. And he has studied how societies can make it easier or harder for people to be together or, or increase or decrease the number of divorces by the types of programs the government passes. And for, for example, the more of a social safety net there is, the easier it is to live, the easier it is to be a couple. Hmm. One of the examples of that is if you want to give your relationship a better chance, you can move to Iceland because they have, they passed a law that says not only do women get maternity leave, but also fathers get maternity leave for X number, like nine months or 10 or a year or something. And they could look at the data that's before and after they passed the law. And they saw that divorces decreased by, I think it was something like 12% Mm -hmm. after they passed this law. By simply passing a law that said fathers get maternity leave, they reduced the divorce rate because they made it easier for couples to be a couple. Yeah. I think that those are important factors, but then there's also this whole aspect to like, we're living longer. Like we're living a longer period of time. And also how many people in this age of like instant gratification are entering into relationships, not even knowing themselves or what they even want. Like, I think it's all very much confounded together. So I'm, I mean, point. I think like a lot of, yeah, the social construct, like society hasn't made it easy, but also we have to take responsibility, I think too, because I think when you evolve as a human, like part of that is resisting temptation. And in, in my opinion, like, you know what I mean? I think you can say that of anything in life, oh, well, you know, they set it up against me. Yeah. But on also, we have to take responsibility that we like to swipe left and right all day. Too much <laughs> choice, know? right? The crisis of choice. Yeah. So, like, I don't know. Like, how do you... I'm curious, actually, I'm curious how, if that came up with your, like, the people you were interviewing and how, how much they account that for some of the problems we see. Yeah, the, uh, the crisis of choice. This is definitely a new problem that human beings are facing that we didn't face in the past having too many choices. Mm -hmm. The human brain doesn't like too many choices. There is an optimal number of brands of mustard that we like on a shelf. And if there's more than like seven brands, we just overload and overwhelm and it becomes, well, if I choose this one, what if I'm choosing the wrong one and I'm choosing too soon? And this ability to swipe left or right endlessly Mm -hmm. makes us less likely to choose and to feel less good about who we do choose. Mm-hmm. It's a brand new complexity that's made it harder to be in a long-term relationship. And we are living longer, but we're living longer than we used to 300 years ago, but not longer than we used to on the African savanna. Mm. People lived into their 70s then and essentially died from accidents for the most part. They didn't have the same number of diseases that we have to deal with today. And the agricultural revolution created this new concept of uh, not getting enough of the right foods. We start, we, instead of eating 
hundreds of different, different varieties of foods, we, we reduced it to five grains, which we live on today. Basically, every, it's all, everything's made from five grains. When we used to eat from hundreds, as foragers and nomads, we ate such a variety of foods, which is so much better for you. I mean, the paleo diet, right, is one of the popular out, outcomes of, of that research. And so what do you do about this idea that we have so much choice? All we can do is understand it, understand our feelings, why we're feeling this way. And then I have, I'm making a choice. I'm choosing you. I'm choosing a partner. And I'm choosing this test, this goal of monogamy and being uh, with a special person. And it won't be easy. And it's going to be a challenge. But Good things are not easy. Good things do take work and are worth the fight. And there are ways to make it, give you a better chance mm-hmm. to make it in a long-term relationship through just changing your behaviors a little bit. And that's what I really try to focus on in the, in the book and in the movie. What are some little things that anyone can do? I don't want to overwhelm everybody with, you know, with years of therapy, but here's five things you can change today. Mm-hmm. easy things you can change about how you relate with somebody. It's just going to give you a better chance and increase your odds, despite the fact that our society, modern day society with Facebook and social media and Tinder and Bumble gives us so many distractions and makes it so much harder. Have you found like, related to that, have you found that certain love languages, is there, I don't know if there's any research on this, like certain love languages um, point to stronger relationships. Like, would a relationship where both people's love languages are um, receiving gifts have the same longevity, prospective longevity, as people whose love languages were quality time? I have not seen anything that says one is better than the other or being um, having the same love languages is better. It's more just understanding who you are and who your partner is. That's the mistake we make. And, and easy to correct. Yeah. And yeah. Make it, I, I dated this girl once and she was getting more and more frustrated with me because I was making mistakes that I didn't realize were mistakes. And I said to her, <laughs> give me a list, uh, like half joking. Right, tell me, give me a list of what you want. And she said, okay. And she wrote down like these 10 things that she wanted from me. Yeah. And I was so happy to have that list. I, it was like, I can't read, nobody, we're not mind readers, right? Yeah. Ask for what you need. And there were things like, hold my hand, tell me you miss me, buy me gifts. That was on the list. <laughs> uh, open Expensive my gifts. <laughs> <laughs> it the price doesn't matter. Yeah. One flower mm-hmm. gives you the same amount of uh, positive gold stars as buying someone a new car. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the quantity, it's the thought a card, getting, getting someone a card, it means you thought about them. Mm-hmm. A card or a car, either one, it's one thought, but they cost vastly different amounts of money. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that goes back to, I mean, I think the biggest things that interest me are, well, communication and related to that handling conflict. Um, and with conflict, what have you learned in terms of like how to, how to properly move through that? Um, and you know, how much conflict is normal? Right. (laughs) Well, I did look into that and there are couples that fight a lot. 
couples that rarely fight and some couples in the middle of the bell curve. Which of those is, what's more stable for a relationship? It turns out they're all equally stable. The thing that does change that shows how stable a couple is, and this is according to John Gottman's research, is the five to one ratio of positives to negatives. So if, you, if a couple fights a lot, that means you've got to do a lot of positives to make up for those negatives. If they mm-hmm. rarely fight, flowers once a year is enough to maintain stability. The further you get below five to one positives for every negative, the more unstable a relationship becomes. And the masters of relationships are as high as 20 to one. And what's a positive? Honey, I love you, obviously. Touching someone on the arm, a hug, a kiss on the forehead, making eye contact, laughing at someone's joke, positive interactions. Negatives are eye rolling or a big a sighing. You, you might not think of that as a negative. That's a negative. That means mm-hmm. you're rejecting your partner and you're not saying, come to me. You're saying, get away from, you know, there's come and go. Uh, obviously, fighting is a negative. Uh, when one of the most astounding things that I found that John Gottman discovered is he can look at a couple for, it takes them about five to 10 minutes and predict with over 90% certainty whether they'll break up or if they stay together, how happy they'll be. And if the number one sign that he's looking for is contempt mm. or condescension, dismissiveness of, of your partner. If he sees evidence of those behaviors, it doesn't look good for longevity. And if you want to increase your chances, you learn how, how to not behave that way. How can you avoid that? One of the, I mean, I could give you all kinds of uh, pieces of advice, but then, you know, that's why I had to write a whole book. But I'll give you an example. <laughs> if you're upset about something, you make an appointment to argue. This is one way to get a better result. Let's say the garage is a mess and you, it drives you crazy. Your husband said he was going to clean it and he hasn't. What do you do? It's going to be an argument if you bring it up. And so here's how Dr. Pat Allen or D- Dr. Bonnie Eaker Weil, they both said argue by appointment. Honey, I'd like to talk to you about the garage. When is a good time for you that's convenient to talk about it? And if he says, well, not today, I'm very busy. Okay. When is a good time? Tomorrow morning, perhaps, or tomorrow afternoon? Hopefully soon. Okay, tomorrow's fine. All right. Then write it down on a piece of paper. 10 a.m. tomorrow morning. We're going to talk about the garage. Now it's an appointment that exists on a piece of paper. It's not just something you said, oh, I forgot. It Mm -hmm. exists. It's real. It's tangible. We're having an appointment to talk about something. The masculine brain functions better when there's time to anticipate and prepare and know it's coming. Ambush discussions go very badly (laughs) with the masculine brain. The feminine brain can handle that much better. It's much better designed and structured for uh, instant discussions. Mm -hmm. But if you wanted a better outcome, now tomorrow at 10 a.m., you can talk about that, the garage. Now, how do you talk about it? You should change, substitute the word you remove you and replace it with the word I. Instead of saying, honey, you are such a slob. That garage is a mess. That puts them on the defensive immediately. Mm-hmm. Say instead, honey, I, not you, I feel so anxious 
when I see the garage in disarray. Can you help me? You're much likely, more likely to get a better result from a plea for help. I'm feeling badly and I need your help versus you are a defective. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, and you need to fix yourself by proving it by cleaning the garage. <laughs> it's how you approach it and you'll get a better outcome. There's like one concrete example of how to do conflict. Yeah. I, <laughs> I forget who it was in the film, but somebody was like, it was like, yeah, you just, I think someone said something about like you basically nicely manipulate them. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> what is, what is it but, but trying to manipulate our partners to try to get them to be someone else, try to change their behavior. Yeah. That's, it's, but is manipulation bad? We're all trying to do it. There's a constant power struggle that goes on in every relationship, whether mm -hmm. it's husband and wife, parent and child, mother and daughter, friends, because things are constantly changing. As Chris Ryan says, you're not in a relationship with somebody. You're in a series of relationships with someone who is changing and you're changing. That's why, why the complexity is so much harder because the variables are constantly changing. Mm -hmm. And it takes conscious intent on your part and understanding of who you are and who your partner is and a desire to do, even if it's hard, to pick up that challenge and improve yourself and do the work on yourself. Because that's the one thing you can't change your partner, but you can change yourself. And that will inspire your partner to rise to your level. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this leads me into something I, I had never heard of before was, oh, I forget what it was, what she called it, but like partner, parent partnership. Is that what it's oh, called? Rachel Hope. Yes. Co-parenting. Uh, she is an expert on co-parenting, which mm -hmm. is for her, she has children with different fathers who were chosen just to be fathers, not romantically. Mm -hmm. She went through a long process, even far more elaborate than dating to choose someone who'd be a good father, who will be there as a father, who will participate, but they don't have any romantic entanglement. And one of the things she said to me that I thought was fantastic was that, how do you know you're in love with somebody? What is love? If someone says, I love you, that's a feeling and there's no way to, to gauge that. You can't measure a feeling. What you can measure is behavior. And so maybe a better pledge or promise to make to someone, like when you get married, you say, I promise to love you forever. You can't honestly promise to have a feeling forever. Feelings change. But what you can promise to do is I promise to behave lovingly toward you forever. Even through difficult times like a divorce or disagreements, I will still behave lovingly. And behavior you can gauge if someone is behaving lovingly I love that. It's a great promise that you can make to somebody. I think it's, it's interesting to me, like that process of picking somebody who would be a, a good father, a good co-parent, like what that was like, because then there's this whole piece of like, we are designed to be able to pick a, pick a partner. You know what I mean? Like we pick up on pheromones, like, right all of that. And so in that way, I feel like it, it goes against nature, but then there's the whole piece of, well, if we weren't really designed to be monogamous, you know, you know what I'm saying? It kind of goes both ways, but I'm like, I'm curious about what, her, you know, how that um, process would be so different than, than choosing a partner. Yeah. Well, you can tell in the kiss, 
if you're chemically matched. If you're not kissing somebody, you can still pick up their pheromones. And these are beyond our conscious awareness. They're beneath our awareness. But we get a feeling. You get a feeling about somebody. You get an instinct. You know, when you meet somebody, sometimes you get a feeling like a good feeling. And other people, you get a creepy feeling. <laughs> That's your body, your brain doing a quick analysis and plugging in all the data and going, no, 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 no. Or, yeah, okay. And society kind of teaches us to ignore our instinct. Mm-hmm. And you should trust your instinct. And when you don't, you know how it, gets, it generally leads to trouble. Unless you're on birth control. <laughs> That's changing your instincts by changing your hormonal balance. It's shifting it. It's changing the dials a little bit. When you're on birth control, you feel your body feels like it's pregnant all the time. So whatever it is that you want is something that someone who's pregnant would want mm-hmm. versus someone who's not pregnant would have slightly different desires, needs, thoughts. And so, yeah, Chris Ryan says in the film that he recommends that couples go off birth control for a year before they get married just to make sure they're compatible. Yeah. I've heard that many times and I think it's very interesting. And it I also makes me wonder if couples who eat a more whole foods diet, if they um, have higher chances of making it than people who eat a more processed food diet. What a great question for research. I bet I'm sure there's got to be a factor because you are what you eat. It affects how you think and how you feel. Uh, I mean, I, I, if I eat certain foods, I feel terrible afterward mm-hmm. and it changes my mood. And mm-hmm. how I behave with other people. If I eat certain, if I eat sushi, I feel great afterward, and I'm excited and and energetic and and happier, and, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's going to affect my mood. Yeah, I'm sure you're, that there's something to that. Yeah, I'd be really interested to see that. Did you look into statistics around like religious views and how much that actually matters? I think that religious views really matter the most in terms of if you feel that you are in a society that accepts you and you, it feels natural to you. The type of religion doesn't, I think, affect mm-hmm. um, happiness in a marriage I mean, or a relationship. I mean, like if, they, if they match up. Well, look at it from Mother Nature's perspective. Mother Nature doesn't care what we're thinking or doing or praying to as long as we reproduce. Mm-hmm. It's all, all of our emotions and feelings and beliefs and ideas are there to keep us preoccupied while we're reproducing. And the religions that said you, you, that sex is a bad thing tend to die out. And the ones that say you should have sex every Friday or mm-hmm. whatever rules they are that once you're married, that sex is a sacred, natural thing, you do it a lot, whatever they tend to stick around. Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, the religion will have an effect on you just the same way that any part of your social environment will have an effect. Mm, okay. Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. I took a couple um, relationship psychology classes in college and the religion thing, there were some interesting things like we came across. I was surprised that uh, when you really looked into it, some of the things that I was looking into kind of suggested that is people assume like, oh, we need to have the same religion, but it's more of like more of a factor if they're having children. Um, and also, does it actually matter that they have the same religion or that they practice a religion and like getting into the nuances there? Well, that goes to your core values. 
and mm-hmm. you're going to do better if your core values are in alignment. Mm-hmm. And if you have deep beliefs in different religions, that is certainly a recipe for trouble because yeah. how are you going to raise the children? What are we, how, what are we going to raise the children to believe? Well, we have to raise them Catholic. No, we have to raise them Hindu. Well, you can't do both because they're mutually exclusive. Mm. <laughs> I mean, you could, but it would be, they'd be very confused. Yeah. Well, I guess that's why you, you take your quiz before, right? Yeah, that's the point of finding someone. If you're going to choose someone to become your soulmate, you ideally want to choose a good candidate. Mm-hmm. I think the thing that's interesting about or like relationship psychology is like from the outsider's perspective, people tend to just think, oh, they just think that because they're cynical, like they've been burned or like, oh, that person has a good marriage. So they're going to have that view. So I think there's just a lot of uh, personal feelings that get, that get pushed on it, you know, like a lot of judgment around um, like, sometimes I wonder people who are really into the uh, more primal perspective. I'm like, how much of this is your research and how much of it is personal feelings coming up where you're looking looking for things to justify what you believe. Oh, great point. I, we're all looking for the information that justifies the answer we want to reach. Mm-hmm. That's natural. It's called the confirmation bias. We discount the information that disproves what we want and give overweight. We give more weight to things that support what we want to believe, whether it's politics or relationships or what have you. But the definition of science doesn't allow that. Mm. Science is data-based. You have to uh, go by the data. You make a theory, and then you look for data that disproves it, or proves it, or both. And you gather as much data as possible. The more data you gather, the closer you get to truth. A scientist will never say, I have the truth. Scientists Mm. will say, the more data we have, the closer we can get to truth. Our conclusion here is we believe this to be a fact with plus or minus 7% uh, uncertainty. If someone says to you, I have the truth, you should Mm -hmm. check for your wallet because they're probably a scammer. Yeah. (laughs) Nobody knows the truth. I mean, we've kind of come to the point where we think the earth is, we're pretty sure the earth is round. Mm -hmm. That's as close to a fact as we can get. But there's still some people that will discount all the evidence and it, human beings are, uh, they're bizarre. Psychology is amazing and fascinating, but in relationships, we're all naturally inclined. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right to try to support what we are. Mm-hmm. And that's what's difficult is to step outside that and accept what we actually are. Learn what we, what you actually are. If you, you don't have to do that, but if you want to be happier, Yeah. You need to find out what you are and accept it and then make your choices. Was, was there anyone that, who you interviewed, who you were surprised by, um, like where their research or like professional opinion differed from their actions or behaviors? Yeah, several. I mean, they all surprised me in one way or another. (laughs) Uh, Neil Strauss, who wrote the book, the game, Mm -hmm. which is a very famous pickup manual, pickup artist manual. I interviewed him and I thought he would really be this, you know, guy, give me all the secrets to sedu- seduction. Mm-hmm. And it turns out he has now repudiated that book. And he, he wrote a new book where it called Truth, where it's about 
the opposite of, of what he believed in the game. And it's now it's about how to get it and maintain a relationship. Mm. So he's gone through an evolution That's as we cool. all do. Human beings, we grow, we, we mature. Mm-hmm. The way you feel when you're young is very different from how you'll feel in 10 years and 20 years and 30 years. But it's hard to, to know that you feel like I'm what I am and I'll always be what I am. And that's mm-hmm. not reality. Another interesting person I interviewed was Robin Baker, who did all this research on sperm. He wrote a book called Sperm Wars. And he and his partners discovered something that was really, at the time, controversial. They looked at sperm and discovered that there's many types of sperm. Only 1% of sperm fertilizes an egg. So what is 99% that other vast majority, what is it there for if it's not to fertilize an egg? And by combining sperm and under a microscope, they discovered that if you take sperm from two different men, they go to war, they fight each other. Mm. And they've got different shaped sperm, like two-headed, single-headed, longer tail, short coiled tail. Oh, they're different looks because they're different, like different jobs that an army would have. Some have spiky pointed heads with that they call assassin sperm with a little bit of poison there. <laughs> so this is all going on beneath, obviously beneath our awareness. And the reason it was so controversial is because his theory that women promote sperm warfare within their bodies by, by collecting the sperm of multiple men implies promiscuity, mm. which goes against what people want to believe in a monogamy dominated culture that we live in. And so it's understandable why that would be controversial. Uh, I tracked him down. He was living in Southern Spain and he was fascinating to talk to. He's like a living legend in, in sperm research. And it's so funny. I began to realize that what's happening on this micro level with sperm is the same thing that's happening on a macro level with human beings where why do men chase women? Why do men court? Why do men pursue women? Well, men are like the sperm, right? Women are the keeper of the egg. And so the keeper of the egg, which is far more valuable than the millions of sperm, there's one egg per month and millions of sperm per event. So that, what's more valuable? This egg is far more valuable. If you're the keeper of the egg, you have the more valuable thing. That means you are more valuable. As Dr. Pat says, women are the center of humanity. They're the bring, they bring forth life. And the patriarchy that has evolved since the agricultural revolution has tried to reverse that and to put men in a dominant position. Before that, it arguably, humans lived in a more matriarchal society where women were essentially the boss. And they're still the boss. Apparently, I interviewed, when I interview people, I ask people, who's the boss in most relationships, the man or the woman? And it was almost unanimous. People, for some reason, think women are the boss in this supposed patriarchy of a world. Mm. So that, it's like, what's going on? There's something going on there. And that it occurred to me that, you know what? If women are the boss, there's a reason for it. And one statistic that Ty Tashiro gave me is that when men get married, they have a 500% decrease in mortality due to things like accidents because women are, their wives are keeping them from doing stupid, reckless things (laughs) that they would do without that supervision. They're thinking a little bit more long-term Yeah, and and, uh, it provides a benefit. That's another, there's a reason to get married. 
You, you live longer. <laughs> Got a better boss. That's a good one. Well, I mean, I think, yeah, I think women are the boss in their relationship. I think the societal patriarchy is a different conversation. You know, I think that's separate, but that's really interesting. Uh, I wanted to ask you how you found Don Blanquito. <laughs> Don Blanquito. Yeah, he was the most single person I had ever met. How did I you mean, meet him? Just uh, like a, a living cartoon of a, <laughs> of a womanizer. I met him when I was in Brazil. I was in Brazil for a film festival for my prior documentary, The Nature of Existence. And we met there and I could tell as a documentarian, I get a feeling like, oh, this guy would be good on camera. Mm-hmm. So I went back four months later and interviewed him. He was my first interview for this documentary and asked him all the questions about what he thinks about marriage and relationships, gathered all that footage. And then I checked back seven years later to see what happened. And he was married with a beautiful baby girl and he was completely changed. And yeah. it shows, it's like a redemption story. If you meet the, it, it, it can happen to anyone. If you meet the right person, mm-hmm. your life can be transformed forever. And so they're doing pretty well. I mean, their marriage has outlasted a lot of marriages. So, and still going strong. That was the biggest shocker for me. He was, he's a character. He's a true character. I was like, why is this guy in this documentary? (laughs) (laughs) But it makes sense. Um, Okay. I have one last question for you. Did you come across any research around love at first sight? Well, yeah, that's chemical, Mm. chemical match. You meet somebody and your chemistry lines up so perfectly that you get a really passionate, strong signal. Mm-hmm. Both each person does and you feel drawn like magnets. And the data there comes from some of the data from something called the t-shirt study mm-hmm. that was done by a Swiss scientist and Klaus Wedekind, uh, where he gave 45 t-shirts to 47 women to smell and sniff the t-shirt and, and, and then rank them by which t-shirt smelled the most attractive. And the t-shirts had all been worn by different men for a week. Said, wear this t-shirt for a week and then bring it back to us. The women had definite opinions about this one smells more attractive to me. This one does not smell attractive. And they disagreed with each other. They all had different opinions on which t-shirts smelled the most attractive. Mm-hmm. After they gathered the data, they looked for what the connection was what correlated and they found that immune systems correlated what women who were sniffing t-shirts were reacting to was if the man's immune system was more dissimilar to theirs the more dissimilar it was the stronger the attraction the more Mm -hmm. similar the immune systems the less attracted they were turns out there's about a hundred different genes in the immune system spectrum and so we all have, are somewhere different on this spectrum of potential immune system advantages. And the reason Mother Nature makes us more attracted to someone with a different immune system is because when you combine genetics with that partner, the baby has a better chance of survival when drawing from two dissimilar immune systems as opposed to drawing from the same partners with the same immune system. And that translates into passion or love at first sight. This is all going on beneath our conscious awareness, and it, it sort of calls into question how much free will do we truly have? Yeah. Well, but that's attraction. Is, is there anything that's looked at that in terms of longevity? 
for a relationship? In longevity, then what happens is that initial passion turns into compassion over time for the raising of children. And then over the next 10, 20, 30 years, you gather shared experiences. Mm. And that becomes as or more important than the initial gigantic passion that you felt. Mm. You become compassionate. And this person is someone you have now shared this period of time with. You can't replace those shared experiences. If you get a new partner, you've got to start over again. And people do that because they think, well, uh, we're bored with each other. I'm going to start over. And then you get that burst of new relationship passion. But then you've lost all of these moments that you shared with someone special. And you've traded in one set of problems for a new set of problems. You traded sideways for the most part, unless it's an abusive relationship. And for sure, you should end relationships that are abusive. But what is love, right? It's many things and it's chemical, it's uh, historical, and it's choosing to share. Love is giving. That's what one of the rabbis I interviewed, Rabbi Laser Brody, he was emphatic. What is love, Rabbi? Giving. That's what it is. And if you choose someone to give to your whole life, and this is more for the masculine, according to Pat Allen, men show their love by giving, like the sperm to the egg, and women bond when they receive. Hmm. On a macro level, as well as it happens on a micro level. And that's why gift giving and gift receiving are not the same and have a different effect on, on partners. So you need to learn what your partner, who your partner is, what is love for them, and provide it for them, and then you'll have a much better chance at longevity. I love that. So in all your research, what was your personal biggest takeaway on how to make a relationship last? My biggest takeaway is we are all responsible for our own happiness. You're not going to find someone who's going to make you happy if you're an unhappy person. You might find someone who can enhance your existing happiness. But if you're unhappy, that's on you. Mm -hmm. If you want to find someone, what you should do is become the person you want to find. Because you will attract to yourself the type of person that you are. And if you are a mess, you're going to attract a mess. And it's going to be two messes trying to figure it out for a period of time until you figure something out. or you can't do it anymore. Mm. If you're two very high functioning, very communicative, accepting people, you got a really good chance that it's going to be a great lifetime partnership together. Okay, there we go. Become the person you want to attract. <laughs> okay, awesome. Well, I want everybody to watch the documentary and read the book. So tell everyone where they can watch it. Is it out yet? Yes, it is. The truth about marriage.com has links mm -hmm. to both okay. the documentary and the book. And you can reach me if you want to send me a, 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 a critique or <laughs> whatever. I love to hear from people. Are you um, accepting documentary suggestions? No, absolutely not. <laughs> because my to do list is so long, I'll never finish it as it is. I've got so many ideas and so many plans. Okay, I just wanted to clarify that for people. <laughs> All right. Amazing. Thank you so much, Roger. Oh, you're welcome. It's been such a great conversation. 
huge thank you to Roger for coming on the podcast and having such an interesting discussion. Definitely check out his documentary, The Truth About Marriage. It is such a great documentary, so insightful, and also his accompanying book, The Truth About Marriage. He also has so many other incredible documentaries. You do not want to miss out on them. You can head to rogernygaard.com to find more and also find him on Instagram at rogernygaard. Don't forget, if you want exclusive access to my private Instagram account, it is the channel crew on Instagram. And all you have to do to gain access to that account is DM a screenshot of your iTunes rating and review, send it to that account, the channel crew. When I get your request to follow and the DM of your screenshot of your iTunes rating and review, I will accept your request and you'll get access to the exclusive content on that page. Juicy, juicy stuff. You can also connect further with other podcast listeners by heading to our free Facebook group, which is now called the Channel Crew. It's a great way to get to know other members of the community. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a screenshot and share it on social media. Tag me, tag Roger, so that we know that you enjoyed the episode. I appreciate it so much when you share on social media. It means the world to me. That's going to be it for today's show. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you have an amazing rest of your day and I'll chat with you again next time.